Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A Living History Production. This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History, coming to you not from some exotic location on a battlefield or a historic site around the world, uh, but from my lounge room. Um, I hope everyone is safe and well and staying at home during these difficult times. Um, and like everyone, everything is being affected in our lives during this coronavirus crisis, and this podcast is no exception. Uh, and so just a little bit of an update on how things are going to go for the immediate future is that I'm going to keep doing the podcast. I've had great response from people saying that they're they're loving listening to the podcast and, and, and taking the opportunity to discover new podcasts during this time at home. And so I'm very happy to keep rolling these podcasts out. It gives me something to do. It gives me something to focus on. So hopefully we can stick together during this difficult time. And and this podcast is one way to do that. Of course, some changes will have to occur. I can't go out and do face-to-face interviews like I love doing. And I can't go out and explore historic sites. But never mind. We're going to make it happen. Um, I've got a plan to do interviews via Skype, via phone. But even the internet has been pretty dodgy lately. Uh, and so that's been a little bit limited as well. But we'll we'll get through it together. We'll we'll stick together. We'll get through it. I think what it means is you're going to see more podcasts like this one, where it will just be me talking. Hopefully that's not uh, not too tedious for you. But we've done several podcasts in the past which have been me just solo talking, and they seem to go okay. So uh, I'm hopeful you'll bear with me and um, and we can still uh, explore some fantastic chapters of history. Um, as I said, I'm recording this from my kitchen table in my uh, in my house. So you might uh, it's not going to be quite as polished as normal. You might hear my dog running around in the background, my children making noise. Don't worry, we'll get there. We'll get through it. We'll still have some great stories about history. Um, other things you can do during this time while you're sitting around a great opportunity to go out and explore new content. Read some books, watch TV shows. There's great documentaries coming out on Netflix and Amazon and Stan and all the other streaming services about the world wars. Um, Also podcasts. In addition to this one, I hope you're all listening to our new podcast on the Living History Channel, which is Peter Hart's Military History. If you haven't if you haven't listened to Peter Hart's podcast, please go and download it from whichever app or streaming service you normally use. It's available on all the main ones, Apple, um, Stitcher, all of them, Spotify, anywhere you can find podcasts, you'll find Peter Hart's Military History. And you really will enjoy it if you haven't checked it out already. It's Peter Hart, who is a very popular contributor to this podcast. He's an absolute expert on everything to do with the First and Second World Wars. He's interviewed tens of thousands of veterans uh, in his time at the Imperial War Museum. And his podcast is basically him and his good chum, Gary Bain, 
sitting there just talking history. They they do it in a very lighthearted way. It's irreverent and they make lots of jokes often at each other's expense, uh, but they do explore some absolutely fascinating chapters of history and both of them have great insight into history and particularly the history of the world wars. So check that one out. There's some great episodes coming up and that will be released weekly every Thursday. Peter Hart's Military History. I just wanted to say before we get into this week's episode that I do wish you all very well. Uh, These are unprecedented times and I know a lot of you must be struggling um, we've had our own issues. I think I think no one's immune from from the, the the pressures and the stress that this virus situation is causing. So I just I wish you all well uh, and hang in there. Reach out to people uh, that you've got around you. It's it's a time for coming together. A, a strange time that even though a lot of us are isolated, a great opportunity to also reach out to people and phone or FaceTime and connect with people around us. So I do wish nothing but the best for everyone out there. Let's all hope and pray that we get through this quickly and we can get back to life as normal. But in the meantime, living history. What am I going to do today? Well, this is the first of the Matt Solo podcasts. Uh, and I thought I wanted, I wanted to do something which is a little bit overdue. Um, the movie 1917 came out late last year uh, and uh, many of you would have seen it. Um, warning, I am going to give away some spoilers in, uh, in this um, episode, but... If you haven't seen the movie, you're probably not going to be that interested anyway. Uh, the movie is now coming out on streaming services as well. It's finished in theatres, which is handy since we can't go to theatres. Uh, it's coming out on streaming services now. So uh, a good opportunity to see it again if you um, saw it in the theatre or to see it indeed for the first time. So I was actually due in December to go to the premiere of, uh, of 1917 and to interview the cast, which I was really looking forward to. But unfortunately, my dear old nan passed away at the age of 92. So instead of going to the movie premiere, I was at her funeral. Uh, so that kind of got in the way a little bit of me um, seeing the movie in the first place and then and doing a review of it like I wanted to do. But uh, I eventually did see the movie and now better late than never, here's a review. But it's, it's timely and the reason it's timely is that it's March at the moment uh, and March was when these uh, actions were taking place 103 years ago in 1917. So it was during March that the Germans retreated to the Hindenburg Line, which was the focus of the movie 1917. So, yeah, I just thought I'd take some time to tell you my thoughts about the movie. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you my overview. I wasn't a huge fan. I, I think the movie deservedly got nominated for Academy Awards and, and I think it actually won some a few a few things in the Academy Awards and various other award shows and, and deservedly so. It was a wonderful piece of cinematography. Um, I also want to start this by saying I'm not one of those nitpicky historians who expects every piece of entertainment to be a documentary. Uh, I'm not like that at all. For example, I also recently saw Jojo Rabbit, um, which was set in World War II, which I absolutely loved. And it had only the flimsiest connection to the realities of the Second World War. But it used the Second World War as a wonderful framework to tell a great story. So I, I am a huge fan of movies in general. I'm a huge fan of being entertained. I'm a huge fan of the arts. And I understand fully that movies are there to entertain. I, I don't expect every movie to go out and be a documentary. So let's let's say that from the outset. Having said that, um, I, I felt that parts of 1917 were a bit of a missed opportunity um, and I'll get into that in a little bit more detail. But let, look, let's start with what I liked about the movie. So, firstly, the cinematography. I mean, what a visual feast. It was extraordinary, that technique of making it look like they'd shot the whole thing in one shot. That was absolutely extraordinary and, you know, huge kudos to the to the creators of that movie for, for accomplishing that because that in itself was absolutely extraordinary. I thought it was beautifully shot as a, as a visual 
representation I thought was absolutely extraordinary. So it, it's it's quite rightly won many awards for the cinematography because it was absolutely outstanding. So that's reason enough to go and see the movie because it just looks so amazing, particularly on the big screen in a cinema. It was quite extraordinary to see that amazing cinematography. So a huge tick there from me for the cinematography. Um, from a historic point of view, the equipment, the environment, the way it looked, the battlefield, the way the trenches were, the gear the soldiers were wearing, uniforms, rifles, equipment, fantastic, uh, first class. But I have to say I know the people that were the historic advisors on this film and they are absolute experts, so I expected nothing less. I knew it would be very accurate in terms of the equipment, the uniforms and the general layout of the battlefield. So they did a great job with all of that. If you if you wanted to see a movie just to see what it was like for a soldier to be dressed up with all their kit, um, great, great movie for that. So I thought they did very well. Also the cast I thought were excellent. They were really likeable, believable uh, you know, I, I I engaged very strongly with the cast. I believed them in their plight, and I, I thought the movie was very well cast, and all the cast um, did a great job. So that was another big tick for me for the movie. And also, I thought in general, it, the movie presented World War One in a very engaging way. I, I think this is a movie that will bring people to the subject. I mean, there's always a debate about if someone uh, engages with a, a historic subject in a movie or a video game or a book, are they going to keep looking that up? I think yes and no. I think there's lots of people who who don't engage any more in the subject than, than just seeing one movie or reading one book. Um, but I know from personal experience that when I was a, a teenager and playing video games, that got me very interested in in Normandy and World War One and World War Two. Uh, and that was part of the story, not the whole story, but part of the story, my backstory that got me into history was was seeing movies, playing video games, watching documentaries. So it can have a very strong effect on people. Um, and so I think this, I think 1917 is a movie that did that very, very well. And I think a lot of people would have seen this movie not having known much about the First World War. No offense to my American listeners, but I think particularly in America, because America, in spite of what, you know extraordinary participation in the First World War, America doesn't know very much about the First World War, uh, and that's a pity. And so hopefully movies like this in, in places like America will open open some eyes to, to what went on in the First World War. I should point out to my American listeners that the largest battle in history, your largest battle in history that engaged more Americans than any other, wasn't during the Civil War, it wasn't during World War II, it wasn't in Vietnam, it was in the First World War. The uh, Battle of the Meuse-Argonne involved 1.2 million American troops. By far the largest battle Americans have ever been involved in was in 1918 during the First World War. So if you're an American, uh, if you saw 1917, maybe this is a great opportunity to go and, uh, and study a little bit more. But for the rest of us as well, um, we don't know enough about the First World War. Unless you're an absolute war nerd like me, we probably don't know enough about the First World War and particularly what went on at this time. So I think the movie did a great job of bringing this topic to life in an engaging way. So hopefully many people will go out now and learn more about the First World War. So that's basically what I liked about 1917. And it did all of that very, very well. And to be honest, I think that's reason enough for seeing the movie and for enjoying it. It looked great. It was an accurate representation of the war and it presented the war in an engaging way, which will hopefully encourage people to look into it a little bit more. But there were things I didn't like about the movie as well. And so I'm going to dig into those a little bit right now. Where do we begin? Look, let's let's talk about let's 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 give a bit of historical background to this movie. In spite of the name, the movie was not about all the fighting in 1917. You wouldn't expect it to. And 1917 was a very fragmented time of the war. There were a number of different things going on in different stages 
and it would be very difficult to tell that story in its entirety. So obviously we didn't expect that they were going to tell the entire story of 1917. The main part of 1917 that we normally think about is the fighting in the Ypres salient, the third battle of Ypres in uh, the the latter half of 1917, from the middle to the end of 1917. Uh, and that was the main action that occurred in 1917 and was a furious, huge battle. And lots has been told about that. The Battle of Passchendaele was the, the most important chapter in that story, that saga that was the fighting in Flanders in 1917. So that's what we normally think about when we talk about 1917. From an Australian perspective and a British perspective, we also think about battles like the Battle of Bullecourt, the huge Battle of Arras, uh, and these all took place in and around the Hindenburg Line. Interestingly, this movie was set in a chapter that lots of people don't know about, but I actually think is really fascinating. I've always been intrigued with this chapter of the First World War, and it's not very well known at all. And the chapter we're talking about here is the retreat to the Hindenburg Line. So why don't I give you some historical context about what was going on in the early part of 1917, which led to this retreat to the Hindenburg Line. So during 1916, the Battle of the Somme dominated in the Somme region, and the Germans fought a very tough campaign during the Somme battle. It took four months for the Battle of the Somme to be over. I mean, it's debatable who won. I, I like to. I, I believe it was a British victory, and I say that because, well, a British and French victory. Let's not forget the French, like we always do in the First World War. I, I believe it was a British and French victory because. By the time the Battle of the Somme was over, the Germans were not going to win the First World War, and they knew it. The Germans knew by the end of the Battle of the Somme, by the end of 1916, they could not win the First World War, and that changed their entire outlook on the war. Rather than then saying, okay, well, how are we going to win this war? They then changed to how are we going to hold as much ground as we possibly can, go on the defensive, and then eventually negotiate for the best peace terms we possibly can. And that's that's really what the Battle of the Somme did. So it's debatable, though. I mean, a lot of people call it an honourable draw. At the end of the day, it certainly wasn't a German victory, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't too much of a German defeat either. At the end of the Battle of the Somme, the Germans found themselves pushed back. They'd been pushed out of the Somme area in some, in, in some regions by quite a large amount. And the Germans, at the end of 1916, assessed their situation. And they said, we... Our line that used to be formidable and strong at the start of the Somme fighting is now not. It's weak in many parts. Because the line moved backwards and forwards, we didn't get to choose where we dug in. So our line is now in positions that we don't think are favourable. And most importantly, our line is too long. Because of the way that the that the Allies had pushed bulges into the line and the line had moved and changed direction and, and also the nature of fighting in a big battle like that, the Germans now found themselves with a very, very long line. It had lots of kinks and curves in it. And what it meant was it just took too many men to man that line. It was not a good defensive line anymore. It had been at the start of the Somme fighting when they'd been able to position it well. But by the end of the Somme fighting, it was not a strong line at all. Um, And it was far too long. They required just too many men to occupy the line and they weren't in good defensive positions. So what the Germans did, they didn't invent this concept. It's been done for ever since people have been fighting wars. but But it was quite cleverly employed by the Germans in 1917. At the start of 1917, they said, our line is too long. They said, let's do this. Five miles behind their front line that was was established after the fighting of the Somme, they began constructing a brand new defensive line. And because it was constructed in the rear area, they were able to site it very effectively. And they called it the Hindenburg Line after their great general. And because, as I said, because it was built in the rear area and they were not under fire from the Allies while they constructed it, they could take their time to do it properly. So they dug huge, deep lines of trenches, a couple of lines of trenches. They put mountains of barbed wire in front of it, concrete machine gun positions. 
and they sited in good locations at the top of hills. And most importantly, they also incorporated a number of villages into the line. So they, they, they called them fortified villages. So they would, the most famous of these from an Australian perspective is Bullecourt. So the village of Bullecourt was actually incorporated into the Hindenburg line. And this was quite clever from the Germans because villages are difficult things to attack. They've got cellars, they've got good communication with roads, they've got telephone lines. So to incorporate them actually into the defences of the Hindenburg line made the Hindenburg line incredibly strong. I should say here, the Hindenburg line was not perfect. We, we tend to talk about the Hindenburg line as this impenetrable series of trenches. It wasn't quite like that. Some parts of it weren't even finished uh, when the Germans wanted to. But, but for the most part, it was very well sighted. It was very well protected. And it used a lot of defences that were going to make an attack very difficult. Barbed wire extended in some places 50 metres into no man's land. Concrete machine gun positions, very deep, very well-constructed trenches. So it was a tough position. And then in March 1917, the Germans began withdrawing to the Hindenburg line. They pulled back out of their old front line on the Somme and they began withdrawing to this much stronger and better sighted position called the Hindenburg line. A couple of things about this, and I think this is where the movie started to get things a little bit wrong. The Allies, this was only five miles behind the front line. And if you imagine in 1917, the Allies had hundreds and hundreds of planes flying over the German positions every day. The Allies were very well aware that the Germans were constructing this line and they knew as soon as they saw it what the Germans were intending to do. And for months, the Allies were issuing orders to their troops saying the Germans are building this new line. They are going to withdraw. The only thing the Allies didn't know was exactly when the withdrawal would come. But even as they moved towards the withdrawal in March, they, they got wind of it. They could start to see German troops moving out of the lines. You know, there was aircraft all over the battlefield. They had a perfect picture of everything the Germans were doing. The Allies were very well aware that the Germans had constructed the Hindenburg line and they were well aware that a withdrawal was coming at some stage. And as the withdrawal began, the Allies were very aware of it. So I have to say about 1917 that I think the, the writers of this movie and the creators of this movie had a fundamental misunderstanding of this idea of the retreat to the Hindenburg line. I think they've heard stories of the retreat to the Hindenburg line and interpreted that to mean the Germans did something incredibly sneaky and they did it in total secrecy, that they constructed this line without the Allies knowing and then overnight the Germans just disappeared and snuck off to this line. I mean, that was the premise of the movie. The premise of the movie that there was, I think it was two battalions, had wandered off on their own, mistaking the German retreat uh, the German withdrawal for a full retreat and therefore they were in danger of being cut off and getting slaughtered when they attacked the German lines. They didn't know the Hindenburg line was there. I mean, that's ridiculous. The, the, the Allies knew very well that the Hindenburg line was there. They knew that the Germans were going to withdraw to it at some stage. They'd been issuing orders to their frontline troops saying, be ready for this. And then, most importantly, when the Germans withdrew, the Allies adopted the strategy that is vital in these situations, which is always maintain the pressure on a retreating enemy. So, again, from an Australian perspective, sorry to keep talking about that, but I'm an Australian and most of our listeners are Australian as well. This is a fascinating time, which is known as the retreat to the Hindenburg line. And what that meant was as the Germans pulled back, the Australians were attacking the Germans as they pulled back. And the Germans didn't just sneak off in the middle of the night. It was a, it was a staged fighting retreat from the Germans. So some German, German troops would pull back, they would man a forward position, they would engage the Australians and the British as they came forward, and then they would pull back. It was a fighting retreat all the way back to the Hindenburg line. And this took several weeks. There were many famous villages in this region, in, in, in sort of the north of the Somme region, that went down in Australian folklore because of this whole retreat to the Hindenburg line. So villages like Noriel and Large Nacor, and there was a whole string of, of villages that the Australians fought some very tough actions 
in as the Germans withdrew to the Hindenburg Line. So I think the movie fundamentally misunderstood this concept of the retreat to the Hindenburg Line, the withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line. The, the, the movie seemed to paint the impression that firstly – the Allies didn't know about the Hindenburg Line until the Germans withdrew to it. And then secondly, that the Germans left right under the Allies' noses without them even noticing. Um, and both of those are just crazy. They were, they were very, well, um, very well known by the Allies. The movie presented, you, you saw that the, even, even to the frontline troops, the British frontline troops knew, they, they, they kept a very close eye on the enemies, on the, on, on the Germans in front of them. Their lives depended on knowing what the Germans were doing. So the British every night would be sending out patrols to, see, to to check what the Germans are doing, to assess the quality of their wire, to see what they were, to capture prisoners, to rebuild their own wire. There were constant patrols going out into no man's land. During the day, they were looking through periscopes. They, they had observers on high ground. They had aircraft flying over. They knew exactly what the Germans were doing. I mean, it was such a compact area, the First World War. You couldn't, you couldn't have any, there was no other choice. You were right on top of each other. You knew everything that your enemy was doing. So, some of those scenes where they depicted the British not realising the Germans had even left. Again, that just was absolutely not realistic. Um, also, getting back to the, the entire... The, the, the main problem I had with this is the premise of the movie that a couple of battalions could head off on their own to pursue the withdrawing Germans and get completely cut off and lost and no one knew where they was. I thought that was just a ludicrous premise. The first problem with that is if they knew where that battalion was on a map, they must have been in communication with them because if they didn't know where they were, if they weren't in communication with them, they wouldn't have known where they were on a map. So the fact that they knew where they were on the map meant that they must have been in some form of communication with them. And even though we talk about communication problems during the First World War, it was not as extreme as the impression they gave. If there wasn't a major battle going on with shellfire going, the, the, the headquarters were connected to just about every battalion. We also have to think about the logic here. The colonel in charge of those battalions, the worst thing he could ever do from his own point of view was wander off and be on his own. He relied on support. He relied on the other battalions around him. He relied on artillery to keep his men safe. He relied on the supply corps to bring up food and ammunition. I mean, how are these guys even going to eat? How are they going to have enough rounds for their weapons if they were cut off from the rest of the army? So the idea that a colonel would want this glory of taking his battalions off on his own was crazy. It just didn't happen. That would be the worst thing a colonel could ever think of. And the idea that it was even possible, in my opinion, was a bit silly. The idea then as well to reach these men would require sending just two blokes miles across country through enemy lines to try and track them down. Again, that to me, was just unrealistic. If they wanted to reach these guys and say to them, call off your attack, if this ludicrous situation had actually occurred, they could have easily just sent an aircraft over to drop a message uh, from a plane or they could have just phoned them up on a telephone line. They were they were constantly in contact via telephone. Yes, it was true that telephone lines were broken by shell fire from time to time, but only for a matter of hours. Um, the, the the Signals Corps did a brilliant job of keeping, that, keeping in contact with people. So I thought the whole premise was a little bit off, the idea of these lost battalions. I thought the idea that the the commander, the the general, then only sent two men to try and track them down. Also, the scale of the of it seemed a bit ridiculous that these two men would have to travel so far for miles and miles and miles behind enemy lines and then fight their way through the front line, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they'd only send two men because two men have got a better chance of getting through than others. I, I just the whole thing just did not make a lot of sense to me from a historic perspective. I'm happy to put that aside for the sake of a good movie, um, but it just didn't seem particularly realistic to me. As I said, I, I think the, my, fund, my my problem with this movie was there was a fundamental misunderstanding of the retreat to the Hindenburg Line and what it meant. Um, but look, even saying all that, that's okay. 
Um, I'm happy if we say that it wasn't particularly realistic from a historic perspective, I'm then happy to say, okay, well, it's just a good opportunity to tell a compelling story. But even then, I, I didn't think the story was that compelling. A couple of blokes trying to deliver a message and then, spoiler alert, when they did deliver the message, the attack was just called off. I, I, I actually thought the story potentially ran out of steam a little bit that after all of this anguish and, and suffering and death and destruction and fighting – that when they got there, they handed over the message and the colonel just went, okay, fair enough, I'll, I'll call the attack off. So, again, I, I don't want to nitpick too much, but I, I just felt that I felt the movie was a bit of a lost opportunity because they the, 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 there was a, it was it was based on a misunderstanding of what was going on at the time and the premise was a little bit um, unbelievable. What it left me with was, like any movie, what was the message they were trying to convey? And I think that's a really fundamental question that you ask when you see any movie. What was the message that they were trying to get across? And that was something I struggled with as well. Um, apart from war is a really nasty business and try your best not to get involved in one if you possibly can, I couldn't actually see what broader message they were trying to deliver with this movie. Um, that there, there, there didn't seem to be any bigger bigger message than just war really sucks and it's awful. And they did a great job of conveying that. I mean, it was horrific, some of those scenes in this movie. It was absolutely awful. It did a great job of conveying that just how nasty the First World War was. It was it was awful. And they conveyed that very, very well. But I, I, I struggled to see any bigger message beyond that. Um, and who knows, maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough for people who don't know about the First World War. Maybe there are people out there who didn't realise how nasty the First World War was, that it was bodies churned up in no man's land and civilians caught up in it and machine guns and bayonets and stabbing and murder and pillage. Maybe maybe there are people out there who didn't understand that about the First World War. And if so, then yes, absolutely, the movie did a very good job conveying that. But I'd, I'd also like to think that most people did know that about the First World War and therefore what was this movie telling us that we didn't already know? And I don't think it was telling us much except... War is really awful, um, and but in that end, they they did a very good job because uh, it uh, they certainly conveyed that idea that war is really quite horrific, particularly for the people involved. I mean, for the individuals involved, um, war is 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 the worst of humanity. So I think the movie did that very very well. And who knows? Maybe that's enough. Maybe I am being a nitpicky historian now, and maybe that is enough for all of us. But so my overall summary is: I thought 1917. It looked absolutely amazing. It was very well cast and very well acted. Um, but I thought it lacked a bit of substance and it was it was built on a premise that I thought was shaky from the outset. So if I was giving it a rating, I'd probably give maybe a 5 out of 10. Um, certainly worth seeing. I would recommend people go and see it um, to get a better understanding of the First World War, uh, but I wouldn't take too much more away from it than just that. Anyway, that is just my opinion about the movie 1917. I know that a lot of people loved it uh, and a lot of historians loved it as well. So, I don't know, send me a message, um, put some comments on this uh, podcast or um, reply on Facebook or Twitter and let me know what you think. Do you agree with, with my uh, my thoughts about the movie or do you think I'm barking up the wrong tree? It's always great to hear from everyone. And I think in times like this, it is important to reach out to people and uh, and, and, and share our, our thoughts and feelings. So feel free to send me messages through social media or, or via this podcast letting me know exactly what you thought about the movie 1917. Thank you very much for joining me this week. I hope that the first of our, uh, our new style of podcasts uh, in living history uh, are going to work for you. I'm really looking forward to bringing you more great stories from history as we go forward. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay at home, and uh, I'll talk to you again next week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.